Welcome, I'm Laura, and I find good advice and make it more personal, more intuitive, and more you. This is Secrets Your Mentor Never Told You. Laura Ann connects artists with audiences and champions athletes' rights. Laura Ann's passions naturally extend from her experience as a professional performer and Olympic hopeful to her role as a public relations executive. I asked to interview Laura Ann because I was curious about living a creative life and her elite athletic mindset. What I uncovered was more than what I expected. Truly a creative person who succeeded in a world of high performance with an expectation of results. She paved her own path. She chose community-centered connections as her intention when working with organizations. Laura Ann showed me that when that element was there, it allowed her to make new choices that weren't necessarily self-directed options. When you connect, you explore. Decisions are harder when made internally. It's better to connect, to experiment, and to see the world how it really is and not what you think it is. Laura Ann also took on opportunities that weren't ideal. It might be what you want, but not perfect. And she made a spectacular success from those opportunities. Laura Ann shows who she is and who she wants to be. And it's not a label or a title. She is pure creative genius. Please welcome Laura Ann, or LA for short. You're based in Vancouver. Are you downtown Vancouver? I'm not. I'm in Coquitlam, actually, so out in the suburbs. And then basically, as soon as high school finished, I went off to university in the States and have barely been home since. So this pandemic has been quite the change. Whoa. So you were raised in Coquitlam and then all of a sudden, like what took you to get a, like a scholarship in the States? Well, when I was training in gymnastics, I had two goals. One was to go to the Olympics and the second was to get a scholarship in the, in the, to the U.S., um, a sports scholarship. So uh, my, yeah, that was just kind of like the two paths I knew gymnastics could lead me to. Um, and it was just like, yeah, that's what happens after, after high school is you go to the States and you get to compete for four more years for your school. So there wasn't really another choice. <laughs> Not that I, like, there wasn't another choice that I wanted to entertain, you know? So, sure. Yeah. Well, gymnastics, like we, there was a choice in that moment. What brought you to do that? Like, why choose that? <laughs> Actually, I began when I was two years old. So I had gone to, I think he was my second cousin or cousin once removed. I don't—I forget what the whole family <laughs> relation is. Um, anyways, it was his like second or third birthday and they did it at a gymnastics club. And my parents tell me, obviously I don't have these memories, right? Oh, my parents told me that they, uh, that I just loved the, gymnastics I loved flipping around I loved going into the gym and when I was at home I was always climbing on the furniture or we have these like banisters in our house and I would literally <laughs> monkey climb up the banister it was like my party trick you think they're like 12 <laughs> feet tall and you know whenever we'd have family gatherings or something I'd be like hey, welcoming the family because one of the banisters was right by the front door that one's like 20 feet tall it's like two stories up uh, I don't, I'm like, your no. parents were proud. I'm like, why are you letting me do this now that I'm older? I'm like, I would never let my child climb up there. <laughs> well, and they did. And cause they knew how much joy it brought you. Wow. Exactly. Yeah. And so then, um, uh, we went into Gymboree, you know, and then it was, I think the instructor there who was like, you know, I think your daughter has some actual talent. You might want to consider enrolling her in actual gymnastics classes. And, um, just from there it, became my life and loved it and uh here I am today still yeah. flipping kind of on pandemic not really flipping but <laughs> yeah yeah there's well that's that's a great that's could be a good theme your life is a flip right I just want but. to honor your your mom and dad for seeing and nurturing the spark the light that they saw in you thank like, you at seeing the, you know, the light that's leading you in your life. You know, my parents were 
and are the most supportive parents ever. Um, for my gymnastics, they were so involved. And honestly, I feel bad for my sister, my brother, because they also <laughs> got very involved, whether it was their choice or not. Not their life. Um, but, you know, like without them, like they became um, board members at our gymnastics club. My mom became like team managers and chaperones at nationals for Team BC. They would, you know, do whatever they could to try and support me in my dreams. And I, a lot of the times I was oblivious to exactly what they were doing. But now that I'm older, I see that. And, um, you know, my brother would have to drive me out to Abbotsford for training or pick me up at night at like 8, 9 p.m. because my parents were coaching or had a board meeting or something like that, right? And so my brother, who's four years older, he would pick up dinner or cook dinner, drive it out to me in Abbotsford so I could eat it in the car on the way home. Because by the time I got home, I still had to do my homework, mm-hmm. right? I was still going to school, to public school. I wasn't homeschooled, so I only went for half a day. <laughs> I, I went till like lunchtime and then I had to go train. And my younger sister, who's four years younger, she also was in gymnastics for quite a few years with me as well. And so she got involved that way. But um, yeah, they were my whole family was helping out at competitions and running the volunteer judging. My mom even became a judge. Like gymnastics <laughs> took over our family. Yeah. And uh, I think that's probably what gave a little rift between me and my brother when we were <laughs> when I was in high school. You know, he's like so over it. But no, now we're good. <laughs> He's so caring and compassionate. And like, right. honestly, even now, it's like, wow. I don't know if he really understands how thankful I am for him. So Richard, if you ever listen to this, thank you. <laughs> I would not be here without you. I'd be starving in the Agridor or whatever in, in Abbotsford, just like waiting to be picked up. <laughs> yeah, sitting on the curb. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so did you meet your Olympic dream? I became the alternate for 2004 um, Olympics, so almost. (laughs) I don't know, like, how did you look at that situation as an alternate? Honest, it was um, my experience on national team was always kind of a fight. Um, There was a lot that went on gymnastics, politics, if you want to call it that, or just toxic cultures. Um, There was a lot that was happening when it came to the Olympics and trials and the selection committee and all that, that had to go into the whole um, consideration of who was actually going to make team or not. I had, you know, I kind of knew it was a long shot, but at the same time still had this extreme desire and hope that I would still be named. So when the final list came out, I wasn't shocked. I was obviously devastated and disappointed, but with the circumstances, I kind of was like, yeah, well, of course, you know, that's who's on team and it wasn't me. And so after Olympics, I, I would say I took a few weeks off, which in gymnastics, if you take two days off, it's like, wow. And so um, taking a few weeks off was like a huge, okay, what, what now kind of thing. But as I said, I always had the two dreams of going to the Olympics and getting the scholarship. Then it was like, all right, well, that's over with. Now let's focus on school and what school program I can get into. And there was still the individual competitions that could happen, Pan American Games and World Championships and Commonwealth Games. Like there was still so much else I could go for. So it was kind of a relief to just, okay, let's take a moment. Let's step back, you know, flush flush out all that juju and just kind of finally do this for me and not for a selection committee. Oh, wow. Um, I feel that energy shift, that light, it seems lighter, thinking about it, doing it for me. Yeah. When I was, because at the time I was 16, you know, so who, I, I don't really remember if it was completely like, I took ownership of it all, but there was definitely a change. You know, it was definitely more of, okay, now let's focus on the school program where I want to go from here. Yeah. Did you focus on your scholarship as well? Yes, exactly. So I was 16. So at the time, recruiters from the NCAA schools were not allowed to contact you until you were in your, I believe, your grade 11th year. Mm -hmm. So I was still finishing up my grade 10th year. At the time, 
my coach was very close to a coach at uh, UC Berkeley, so University of California, Berkeley. And that year, so I think it was in 2004, um, that Elite Canada, which is in December, uh, that coach came up and he actually was rooming with my coach just because they were friends, you know, so by proxy, I kind of got to have more conversations with him. Um, not necessarily about recruiting, but of course I started building that connection just because I was like, oh, he's my friend's or my coach's friend. And uh, lo and behold, three months later, I ended up verbally committing to Cal Berkeley because of him, because I was like, I really like his vibe. I really like his coaching, mm. you know, like what I could understand from his coaching um, techniques or whatever. And of course my parents were like, Oh my gosh, UC Berkeley, that'd be an amazing <laughs> school to go to. You'd be in San Francisco, Yay. you know? Um, yeah. And so I verbally committed without even going down to the program to see the, the campus or like meeting the, the head coach. Cause he was only the assistant coach at the time. Eventually, I think it was actually a year later, he ended up leaving the program. And so then I was like, okay, well now what? I was coming for you. I don't know. I don't even head coach because I've never even talked to her yeah. <laughs> and I don't know any of the gymnasts and so um, yeah and then eventually I and and by then it was already later in the recruiting process so most of the other schools that I was getting recruiting letters for and interest from had already filled their spots back away they heard I was off you know I had already verbally committed so they're not going to continue reaching out um, and so yeah I kind of was like oh no I just I just lost that chance to get to like a D1 division one school. Um, but luckily Oregon State really quickly jumped on me and um, the coaches, Michael and Tanya Chaplin came up to Vancouver to visit and I just fell in love with, wow. they were a husband and wife team. It was really, um, yeah, it was just really like automatically this family vibe you got from them. And it was in Oregon and my family used to go and camp in Oregon all the time when we were younger. So it was like returning home plus uh, tax free shopping, which my parents still go down <laughs> every year. Well, except last year in the border closures, but yeah, yeah <laughs> so it I, ended up working out. I, I'm getting a sense of your family and the support, the way that they add support. It's not like they're throwing all their support toward you. They're looking at life as an adventure through you. Yeah, that's it. Actually, they uh, they've always been very. Uh, supportive of whatever dream we want to do um, but with the reality realistic mindset still even when I was going fast forward like even when I was mentioning I was going to surf my parent my dad especially was very like well what about physio school because that's what I was right. going to going to getting my undergrad in it was to go and be a physio eventually so it took a few years for him to like really come around, I think, completely. And so he uh, he eventually, you know, saw how much fun I was having and how successful I was being by doing my art and my gymnastics in a different light, in a different way, and being able to touch communities in all kinds of cultural diversity and um, all around the world. So, um, so yeah, he obviously he's fully on board now. And uh, so yeah, you were gonna finish physio. And did I, that happen? That did not happen. So after I had finished my four years competing at Oregon State, I took a fifth year to finish up my studies because I had one more course out of my out of my major that wasn't offered until the spring semester. The following year was only offered once a year. So you have to wait the whole year <laughs> to take it. Yeah, of um, course. That's when I decided, okay, well, let's do a psychology minor um, to fill up the time. And I love psychology as well. Um, so my, my bachelor's is in exercise and sports science. So the plan was to go to physio school, um, which is, yeah, you have to get a master's if you want to practice up here in Canada or in the States, you have to get a doctorate degree. So either way, it's grad school. So I'm busy, you know, filling out applications that year, um, submitting it. And then I find out I, I got an interview, um, but I didn't get I didn't get into most people, the program. Most people get rejected on the first try. Oh yeah. Just, and I've heard. <laughs> and in, in Canada, especially there were at the time only 10 physio programs and they only allowed 30 to maybe 50 students each. 
So it is very intensive. And because I was coming from an American school, it was also having to try and prove that our curriculums were at adequate, you know, the courses, they're called different things, but you're still covering the same topics. And it got very convoluted in that sense. So I'm not using it, that as an excuse, but I totally am. <laughs> well, we're talking about hurdles. And I think the whole education system is about that. And I think the fact that again, you're you keep trying and you're going and you have a series, you've got proof that you've had a series of rejection or just almost there almost made it right with the systems that are also designed to reject on your first attempt like or whatever you know yeah. subjective ways that you they know do things so how Laura, do you navigate I've, that i've never thought of it that way but totally true you know i um yeah from the olympics not making it to cal berkeley you know that whole thing happening although it ended up working out for the better well if anything everything that I've had to overcome all the, all the almost, I think ended up working out for the better, obviously. Um, but yeah, and then not getting to grad school. So I didn't get into grad school. And then I'm at home uh, back in Vancouver at this point. And I was like, well, now what? Um, oh, it's 2011. Hey, 2012 Olympics are next year. And my body feels great. And college taught me how to be in love with gymnastics and how much fun you can have with it. And I just really missed it. And I was like, okay. So I contacted my coach, David Kenwright. And I was like, do you think we could do this? Like, I don't know, I'm kind of crazy right now. I haven't even trained for a year and almost a year and a half at that point. So I don't know, I don't know how my body's gonna react, but would you be willing to help me? And he goes, we need bar workers on the national team right now. And that's your strongest event. So yes. <laughs> he's already like, how can we make this happen? I want you now. And he's like thing. a bar technician, like uneven bars oh. is his event. Like he, he loves it. So we made it through. Um, yeah, I think that was in August maybe. Mm -hmm. And my first competition was already in uh, probably November for trials for, for national team called elite Canada. Wow. Yeah, that was really fast. I can't say I was like excited to compete then because just like I, I didn't feel ready. But, you know, it's all part of the process. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was it was a big learning curve. I knew if I didn't go for it, I would have that regret of, well, what if I had? Um, but it was definitely also eye opening in the sense of, OK, elite gymnastics is not what collegiate gymnastics is about. It's a completely different world. I'm training with girls 10, 12 years younger than me who are also trying to go to the same Olympics. Uh, so there there was a lot of different dynamics I had to kind of wrap my head around. And, you know, I, I even remember having a conversation with my coach saying, hey, I'm not the same as I was when I was 16. At the time, I was 21 now. And so I don't think I can do the same amount of numbers as these 16 year old girls can, you know, I'm not going to be able to be doing all four events in one day because in college, we only trained three events a day and we would alternate, you know, one day we would do vault, one day we would do floor and alternate. So you're not doing that impact as much. Yeah. And so it was a learning curve for both of us to just realize like, okay, our bodies are a little bit older. How can we maintain and yet, you know, and, and still progress into the the route that we want to go but yeah I think it was around at a competition around March that I started to have a feeling of oh I don't know if I really want to do this whole elite thing again um but I was at a competition in Montreal and that's where the Cirque du Soleil headquarters are <laughs> and so of course at that competition Cirque, Cirque banners were everywhere promoting and I have to say leading up to like all the way through my gymnastics career up to that point, I never even considered Cirque du Soleil. It was just like, it's there. I know some gymnasts go into it, but I want to be a physio. Yeah. But yeah. And then I started talking to the physio who was there and mentioning how, yeah, I'm doing this because I didn't get into physio school. <laughs> how, the, the same. <laughs> yeah. I was like, how do you become this physio? You know, just kind of asking what his path was like. And he mentioned he was the, he used to be the head physio at Cirque du Soleil. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. And so it start, kind of started planting the seed, like, well, what if I joined Cirque? That'd be, that'd 
that'd be fun, right? Like then I can still do gymnastics, but in a much lighter way. And it's, it's again, that transition out of elite gymnastics, but um, like without competition, but having fun doing it. So I think that planted the seed. And then um, eventually after nationals, I decided I was like, you know, I'm not, I came third on bars, by the way, which was really cool. Um, <laughs> so I got my medal and <laughs> yes, but I remember them announcing me as the oldest competitor because at the time, <laughs> At the time, um, elite gymnastics wasn't what it is today. Uh, now we're seeing people who are in their 20s, like Simone Biles and Allie Raisman and all these bigger names, um, because it has become more of a power sport. But when I was competing, it was still very much like 16 to 18 year olds at the Olympics. I just have to interject because I really love the fact that you are thinking about your body holistically and thinking about your dreams in a broader sense that is there something left on the table and then again going trying something that lead might lead you to something that you've spent how many years with Cirque because you had to see yourself in something in order yes. to cross that, I mean, that metaphor of the bridge, I do, I do think that's what it is. It's if I see myself there and I, and I can see parts of me and then all of a sudden things take shape. Otherwise, it's just a traveling circus that's going around and you just go, oh, that's just an event. And you don't really plant who you are in there. Like it's, it's not. A, right. It's all about relativity, right? Uh, yeah. As you saw it said, like I, saw I knew about Cirque du Soleil I knew people other gymnasts who had gone to Cirque du Soleil but I had never placed myself into that environment until I started making personal connections with people who had been there and hearing their stories and being like wow that's really cool I kind of want to do that too yeah I think that's what's led me to who I am today is like learning about people's stories and just kind of finding out about new experiences that you could have you needed a connection. You needed a connection to Berkeley. You needed a connection to Oregon. Like you, all your choices were about what's there that I can see myself in and yes. be a part of and contribute. Definitely. And, that, and I, I think that goes back to some of the stuff that happened in gymnastics is because I never felt like I was necessarily welcomed on that team or like, you know, it was, I was there, I was one of the numbers that they were going to have to cut or whatever. Right. Like it wasn't my place to be there. And so then after the Olympics and after 2004 and finding out I wasn't on team and it was like, okay, from here on now, I'm going to make sure that I'm wanted where I'm going to go. And I, yeah, as you said, need that connection to believe that I could be there because it had been removed from me for so long prior. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's cool. So you, you, you got your medal and then like, did that bring you back to Vancouver after being in Montreal? I came back to Vancouver and that's when the real discussion of, are we going to go for the whole selection camps and training camps and trials, Olympic trials for 2012. And that's when I was like, you know what? I know. <laughs> I don't, I was mature enough to realize I knew exactly what the mental discipline was going to be and the commitment and dedication that it needed, that needed to happen. And I just, I'm just not there anymore. You know, well, I, it sounds like the fun you were, yeah. you wanted fun. You went to college, you said right away, like it was about, they made me love gymnastics again. Yeah. And, and I think you were starting to make that shift. Yes, exactly. So I believe it was after nationals. I was at that competition in Montreal. I started to tape my demo to submit to Cirque du Soleil. So that's what I've seen on YouTube because people can probably. Look. Yeah, I, I love it. Oh my gosh. I, if I watch it now, I'm like, oh my God. Because now that I've been in Cirque, I know what they look for and, you know, what they actually want to see. And I'm just like, oh, wow, why am I saying that or like putting that in? Like, they don't care about that. I think it was like a 12 minute video and really they look at it for like three minutes, you know, but whatever. <laughs> um, it's brilliant. You're inspiring young people and you're showing them what's possible. Oh, thank you so much. 
But yeah, so after nationals, I had submitted my demo officially and then basically was just kind of waiting around again. Then I actually got invited that summer to the Cirque du Soleil headquarters in Montreal to do a training program. It was called General Formation um, or Formation General in French. Um, and it was basically <laughs> my French is I was about to say no bueno. That's how good my French is. <laughs> I've done that. Yeah, that's um, great. But yeah, and so it was a program that Cirque put together where they would bring in various artists to basically train them on how to be an artist. You know, they would prep them for when a contract would open. So you didn't have a guarantee that there was a contract, but you would learn obviously different acrobatic skills, but also character building, acting, dance, makeup lessons, everything and anything that you needed in order to be a successful artist in the in the program or in the company. Wow. So that was amazing. We were actually the last cohort for that program because after that they ended up doing more specific training. So only if there was an opening, they would bring you in. And I think it's a really big loss to be honest, but who knows, maybe now with the reformation of Cirque, we don't know what's going to be happening. And maybe that's a priority that they've realized, oh, we bring that back but who knows who knows um, yeah but yeah and so I had a great time it was two and a half months in Montreal where I was working with people from all around the world and that's what I loved I loved that that connection and we all stayed in the same residence right across from the actual headquarters so it was like a dorm of Cirque du Soleil artists <laughs> we didn't always understand each other there the Russian troupe they did not speak a word of English but we would learn Russian by playing pool with them. And they would learn English by playing pool with us. Cool. And uh, the Chinese troupe was there and they would make their Chinese dinners and they would invite me and which was nice because it was like a little bit of home cooking, you know? Yeah. So yeah, it was just an amazing experience. And then I had to go home after the end of my program and I waited seven months until I heard back from third. Oh. And so that was also devastating because as I said, when you got into this program, there was no guarantee that you were going to have a contract, but you were obligated to stay available for up to six months for them because they just invested all this time and money into you. Right. And so, yeah. So during those first six months, I'm at home still training as much as I could, but also like, well, what if I never get a contract, you know? And then once that six month mark hit, I was like, I think even my parents were like, so what are you doing? <laughs> what are you, you know? <laughs> there are, your parents are waiting at knock, knock at your bedroom door. Yeah, exactly. So six months, what's going on? And I'm now like, it's like, oh, it's kind of similar to pandemic times. You know, I'm back in the same bedroom and there's like, so, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> they want to know, like, this is not a dorm anymore. <laughs> Thank goodness. They are, again, very supportive and aren't just kicking me out to the curb. But uh, six months hit and then I, even I was like, okay, what am I doing? Like, I maybe I do still get back into this physio game. And so I, I got a job at a clinic. And yeah, I think it was a month. Literally, I did my training for, for that new job. It was like 15 days or, or something, you know, like it ended up being like two and a half weeks yeah. or two weeks. And then I got an email from Cirque being like, hey, we have a contract for you on Amaluna and we would love for you to join. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like this is absolutely amazing. But I literally just finished training. Like it was the day after I finished my training program. And I was like, oh gosh, they're going to kill me. Bye. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See you later. Um, so yeah. And I had, I think at the time, my parents had just left for like a 40-day cruise. I sent my mom an email, I guess, very excitedly, all in caps saying, call me as soon as you get this. Uh -oh. But she lands from her flight thinking something horrible has happened because it's all in caps. And I don't say like, I'm fine. I don't say, oh, I have exciting news. It was just call me. Called me in absolute panic. She's like, are you okay? What's going on? You know, I was like, yeah, I'm fine. Why? And she was like, well, you kind of sent me this extreme panic message. I'm like, oh no, I just got an email from Cirque and they want me to join a show. So I'm not going to be here when you guys get back. I'm joining the circus. <laughs> And so she still gives me, um, you know, she still gives me a hard time about that because she's like, you gave us a heart attack, you know, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> 
sorry. I could just see the email like, yeah, because I should actually see if I can find it. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I love that line. I ran away. I'm not going to be here. I'm running away and joining the circus. Literally that. Yeah. So yeah. And then it was only a three week contract at the time. So it was three weeks. Yes. It was very short. And so at the time I was just like, this is my into the company. You know, I didn't even think twice about it. And as we're speaking about hurdles jumping over, it became one of those things where I continued to extend this contract more and more and more. So sometimes it was three weeks, sometimes it was two weeks, sometimes it was a month. So I never really knew where I was. And we talked about this whole sense of belonging and like connection and wanting to see where we were. And so it was really hard for me because I couldn't really see, am I staying here a long time or am I just filling a void until I get into physio school again, you know? And it became a running joke because I ended up being the artist who was permanently temporary, as in I had signed 16 temporary contracts in four years. (laughs) And I think I had left the show twice And then came, like, I had actually, you know, the overlap of the contracts wasn't quite there. So I actually did go home and then get called back, like, the next city or, like, a couple weeks later or something like that. You brought something special to this position, right? So what did they see? What did you think they saw to keep bringing you back? Well, they could have chose somebody else. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for one thing... They invest so much like to bring an artist onto a show because they have to consider all the trainings. They have to consider the way the shows worked. It was like, okay, my show was called Amaluna, but then they have to pay Cirque du Soleil for the coaching hours, for the casting hours, for the HR. Like it's, you know, it's their own entity that they rent out from Cirque du Soleil. So it's all that stuff that goes into it as well. And then you have to get your costumes made and the costumes are ridiculously expensive as well, right? They're all handmade. So yeah, it's a big investment. So it's not just like, okay, unless I royally screwed up, I was going to be that first person to keep coming back. And so I think also, you know, I I, I was talented at what I was doing. I was able to support the act where they needed support. And I like to say that I'm a good person to to have around. You know, I love bingo. Um, keeping the morale up and and yeah. So you you're a professional at uncertainty. Yeah, that's really and what I'm I'm seeing the pattern already, right? The unknown. It's funny that you say that because I honestly I I don't like change. I always grew up being like oh, I hate change. You know, like because because to me it was from a young age, like, as I said, gymnastics, I have two paths, but they are both going to the same way. It's Olympics. And then it's, and then it's scholarship. And then once I was in school in in the States, it was okay. Physio. That's when things started getting confusing, but up until that point, it was very like cookie cutter. And I still have that mindset. Well, actually, no, maybe I don't, but (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, oh, I'm talking through this. That's not true. But, um, But maybe, but because I had that foundation, you know, then it, it's, yeah, it's been interesting to hear you say that I'm master of uncertainty. <laughs> well, that's what leads me into your next iteration of yourself is the PR. Now there's lots of little divergent stories around this. So what made you choose PR? Well, okay. So after my four years of being temporary contract, I finally, <laughs> my 17th contract was a permanent contract. Yay. Yes. <laughs> and so it was the end of our European tour. We were just about to head to South America. I finally got that permanent position and I was uh, ecstatic. Everyone on the show for me was ecstatic as well. Cause okay. I had actually been there for longer than the majority of the people who had been there at that time, even though it was only temporary. Yeah, so that's how much turnover we were starting to have. I think once I finally got that permanent position, I was like, okay, I have a home. I have a sense of belonging. Now I can start to really make an impact, not just on stage, but like in the tour life, in the whole community that we have. Because we have about 120 people on tour and it can get really lonely sometimes. You know, we're not allowed to go home for special occasions, holidays, weddings a lot are even hard to get time off because if you're gone then someone else has to fill in 
can someone fill in for you? I don't know. So um, there, yeah, I, I had to miss like my best friend's wedding. I was in Amsterdam and watching their thing on, on my screen, you know, crying because yeah. I wasn't there. But um, but yeah, there was a lot of times that you miss out and that obviously can make you feel pretty isolated at times. So I think it was around then when I started to really, I got elected to be the chair of our social committee on tour. And so one of the jobs was to just kind of find activities in the cities that we were visiting in. So whether that was going to children and youth hospitals, bringing artists in costume and makeup to the kids who were too sick to come see the shows or in poverty where there was no way that they'd be able to come see the show. Those were always one of my favorite things that we would do, you know. Yeah, you really build that connection with the community and you get to see like what the reality is for a lot of these people. Oh, or we'd throw tour parties, you know, if it was our show's birthday or like the 2000s show or or whatnot. We always did good celebrations for that. Yeah, we'd find a lot of different ways to distract from what might be stressful times through the direct work that we were doing. And so everyone was like, LA, you're such, you're such a good leader. You know, like you always get people involved and uh, I, I always had like some castmates come up to me and she's like, yeah, even though I didn't want to come to the hospital, like you kind of nagging me to come and just like making me, it, I'm so thankful because it actually was amazing to do, you know? And I was like, wow, that's so good. And they're so I started getting really close with our publicist who was on tour with us. I was like, hey, do you think I could, I could like shadow you and just kind of see what you do? And, and at the time, Cirque had actually implemented this new training program for artists because they realized artists can't be acrobatic for their entire lives. So what are you going to do after? And this allowed you to kind of have like an internship with someone else who's on tour, who's in a industry or, or trade that you might want to go into afterwards. And so I, I did that with our publicist and it was awesome. I got to go to different events with her, you know, do some artist management as well. And some media relations, even when they were on site with us and it all kind of was like, yeah, this is, this is awesome. This is what I want to do. Cause at the time I was like, I think um, I had looked into physio going back to school and <laughs> I had saw, I saw that they were like, oh, your prerequisites have to be within seven years of applying. And at the time, like I had already taken my anatomy course probably 10 years ago. Oh. So I was like, well, okay, that's out the door. Like, I'm not going to go and redo all my courses. <laughs> and yeah, I honestly, I think I got more squeamish as the years went by because you get to, you see some pretty nasty things happen and. I was like, mm, I love physio. I have so much respect for them, but that's not what I want to do right now. This seems so much more fun, like throwing events and like getting people involved in communities, uh, community connection and all that. So yeah, that's kind of what drove me into this whole PR mm -hmm. way of thinking. You are moving toward what lights you up. So you automatically were excited because of the feelings that it generated. Whereas you looked and you had to... <laughs> I mean, who likes going back to university and going through all the administrative requirements? Like that's, that's like, boo, boring, right? I mean, I do have to say like, my dad would still send me a, oh, hey, there's like this sports medicine program, <laughs> you know, like, oh my gosh, dad. But no, as long, you know, as long as um, we're happy and we're motivated, I think that's the biggest thing, you know, it's like, you're motivated to keep learning. You're motivated to keep inspiring others. Both my parents are very great mentors, um, not just to our, the kids, uh, me, my brother, my, my sister, but like the people that they mentor, you know, um, they were both in the school system as teachers and then eventually principals and then superintendents. And, and so wow. they, they know what it takes to be, yeah, to start from the bottom, work your way up, but just building those connections is almost more important than having letters after your name. Although my, my parents would love that. Yeah, it's funny how your parents are in, in, they're thinking about, oh, it'd be great if they, our kids had letters after their names, yet their spark and their energy was always about finding where you, you know, belong and being and being involved and creating the experience 
And that, I think it just osmosis led you to this PR world, which I think is amazing is how we met through that uh, connections there. Yes. Yeah. So tell me, you just got a new job and you, oh, first of all, scratch that. You're like a pro on Clubhouse. How did that happen? Yeah. So honestly, Clubhouse, if I was a spokesperson for Clubhouse, they would be so excited because I've just been telling absolutely everyone about Clubhouse. But um, (laughs) the way this happened was, so in the fall of the pandemic, I decided, you know, Cirque had already filed for bankruptcy. All of our contracts got pulled. Um, The project that I was about to go do and be it was supposed to be a resident show which I was super excited about but that that completely got canned so now it was really like okay I have no contract to be pulled back to and I really enjoyed what I was doing in PR on tour and I even had taken off I took a sabbatical while I was on tour uh, to go do some PR work in London and in Europe so I was pretty sure that that's the route I wanted to go with after acrobatics and got to do some amazing experience so I was like I don't want to waste all that you know like that was so cool and I had momentum I have to say like once the pandemic hit there was a few months where I was just like couch potatoing not wanting to do anything not even want to think about PR stuff but I don't know there was just a day it was in the right it was the right moment and this Facebook ad popped up about Simon Fraser University's public relations certificate program and I was like huh okay. And I looked through it because I was like, as you just said, like going back to school, I don't want to be doing a two, four, three, four year program. You know, this program was only nine weeks and six of those weeks were classes and courses where you got to learn from um, current PR professionals. And then three of them, or sorry, yeah, three weeks were a practicum where you actually got to work with either an agency or a client. And yeah, to actually utilize that because when I was on my sabbatical in London I did take a PR course as well and it was not necessarily the most useful the most practical I should say so I I came out of it thinking like okay there's still so much for me to learn and I don't feel comfortable doing anything on my own whereas after this program I was like wow this is really great I could get into this like right away so yeah so then I had made this connection. One of our guest speakers, his name was Rich Patterson. He actually is from um, New West. And he was talking about to our class about merchandise and swag and how brands can use that. Um, then I was looking through his Instagram and then I see this video of this gymnast. And I was like, oh, that's weird. But I was like, wow, this girl's really good. So I messaged him and I was like, hey, I was just looking. I'm like, who's this girl in this video? He goes, oh, that's my daughter. And I was like, no way, that's so cool. And so his daughter, Sophie, is hoping to go to the 2024 Olympics in Paris, right? And so I was like, that's so cool, let's connect. And anyways, we started talking. I'm I'm starting to mentor Sophie and hopefully that I can be there for her, for her journey. But Rich asked me, he was like, hey, I was thinking of, there's this new app called Clubhouse and I really want to host a room on how to raise high-performance athletes. And I would love if you could be on the panel with me and just kind of talk to us parents and like what works, what doesn't work, you know, where's that line of being overpowering, overbearing versus supportive. And I was like, this sounds so cool. Let's do it. So he's the one that invited me to Clubhouse. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, what is this invite, you know, and I'm doing all this research, but I honestly, I fell in love with it. Like, I signed up, I think, on a Sunday, and then on Wednesday, we had our first panel, and we had a couple of their parents and coaches join us into wow. the conversation, and it's just this really great platform where you can open a room. It's audio only, so it's not like you have to get all dressed up or whatnot for Zoom or, you know, um, and you can just have these open conversations with these amazing leaders or people in, in the, whatever community you want to connect with. I've I've really noticed people are so generous with their time, with their advice as well. You know, like if anyone's reading about Clubhouse or whatever, you'll see like Elon Musk jumped on with someone from Robin Hood right after that whole debacle happened. And so everyone jumped in because they were like, oh, it's, it's the transparency that you can get through this app, right? Like when would you ever be able to be in the same room, whether it be virtual or not, as Elon Musk or as 
I think like the Mean Girls of like Lindsay Lohan and the cast of Mean Girls was in one another time or like there's so yeah, there's so many different it's avenues. addictive it's very addictive and I I use it a lot to learn a lot more about branding and social media and influencer marketing anything PR related really um because I'm still new and there's still so much for me to learn so yeah I I love I love Clubhouse I love Clubhouse <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what's what's going to be coming up right but yeah, as long as I have the opportunity um, in front of me, I'm going to seize it. And, and I'm just so thankful. I told you, you're a pro at the uncertainty. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to mention Project Lumiere. Uh, if you oh, yeah. Talk, talk about this because this is how you give to the world. Yeah, so Project Lumiere um, started on Facebook. We started this initiative last year during the pandemic when the entertainment industry um, and performing arts industry continued to get shut down. And it was a time where a lot of us, we lost our jobs, we lost our communities, we lost our lifestyles because we're not on, on tour anymore, but we're told to go home and many people, like I was fortunate, as I said, I have my parents who allowed me to come home, but because a lot of people have been on tour for so long, they don't have a home to go to. And so there's, you know, these nomads who were giving so much to the communities that they were in who all of a sudden don't have anything or can't return home because of border closures or, you know, they're having to be on welfare because we can't collect uh, or not even welfare. We can't collect um, unemployment or insurance or anything like that because we weren't like in the country, in the country working there or whatnot. So yeah, it was just a really, really hard time. So Project Lumiere was there to help build our community, say, hey, we're all still here. Yes, we're all going through the same thing, but maybe there's some sparks of hope, some stories of people who are pivoting um, and trying to figure out how they can use their skills and see it in different lights and all that kind of thing. So it's definitely been a project, but it's been really I think it's really helped me, to be honest. Um, it's given me a purpose. It's given me motivation and inspiration. And as we've already discussed, I love just connecting with people. So yeah, it's been it's been very rewarding. And rewarding to hear your, your journey as well. Thank, Thank you, you, Laura. Thank you so much, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> Laura Ann, I apologize. <laughs> LA, LA, baby, LA. <laughs> Not from LA, though. <laughs> no, no, but I love the Laura Ann, the, the abbreviation, yeah. I wanted to share with you about what I learned here in this episode in my life today in 2022. The big deal is, for me, my life path doesn't need to look a particular way. There are opportunities or I like to call doorways, that don't always look like they are, but then they are. Um, not all of them work out, but there is so much to gain in that experience or the connection. So many insights and stories from them as well. And I think that's what I'm creating in sharing my life. And that's through these connections, particularly when I interview someone. I also learned how to look at creation from the inside out. Well, what do I mean? It's that you, you engage with an opportunity and then something more comes from it. One particular situation, I, I went for an audition for a show, a play, and they asked for readers. And A, the, the play itself is unpaid in this particular area. And helping read takes about three hours of the day. I said, yes. And my reasoning wasn't just to gain an advantage. My reasoning is I get to act for three hours versus go into an audition and do it for, if I'm lucky, 10 minutes. I get to be in the room and see others create. And with that, that's the, the whole connection and opportunity. I look at what I do, whatever I do as a play, the show, I look at it as, you know, not a destination, but I'm actually playing. I'm in, I'm just here to play. I am here to connect. So in that, 
opportunity. I made a connection and I was successful in one particular uh, occasion. But it's not about imposing myself on someone. It was just an opportunity was there. And I set the intention to give. It wasn't about what's in it for me. And from it, I, I got more than I could ever hope for. So I'm really looking forward to this event. I just want to say, if you want to know more about Simon Fraser University Public Relations Program, you can check their website out. I will provide a link. Oh, also through my meeting with Laura, I met Caitlin Meggs and she is a a choreographer and creative consultant for the Cirque du Soleil. I joined her program that she offered online and (laughs) I didn't think I belonged there, but it turned out to be an amazing experience for me. It was helping me with my way back to acting. So I highly recommend Caitlin Meggs creative games, and I will provide the link in the show notes. Anything else, please do have a look in the show notes because I will plug in anything that anybody that is curious or just want to have a a gander at what's going on in the world, what's possible. You never know. Something might spark for you. Thank you so much to Laura Ange. Today's a good day. All right. Take care. Yeah. Yeah. No, everyone's always like, oh, you're LA from LA. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm not American. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely Canadian. But uh, yeah, even my dad was like, after my first year or first semester at college, he comes down and he's visiting. And he goes, you sound American. But actually when I come home, I can hear when people are like very Canadian. Yeah. You know, and I got I got made fun of for speaking to Canadian my first um, semester down in in the states, and so I guess I inadvertently tried to sound like them more. <laughs> you know what? It happens. I lived in the UK for so long. Oh yeah, yes. too long, and I came back with this dialect that was weird, and people would be like, "Who are you kidding? You're like the worst <laughs> accent." I'm going. You don't get it. If you're in a a country speaking the same language, the dialect, the tone is everything. It means 100%. Yes. I lived in London for six months as well and starting to ask, you okay? You all right? And I was like, yeah, sorry. You don't don't actually ask. Like you don't ask, you all right? And like want an answer back. It's like us being like, hey, how are you? You know, you don't always... You just say it as like a greeting. You don't always want to know how the person is. I mean, I do. But. <laughs> I get where you're going. Like it's it's a rhetorical, like uh, you know, just walking by. Like, hey, how's it going? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're all right. And you're like, do you care? Right. <laughs> and then the like, do you in care? North, yeah, in North America, when you say, "Are you all right?" It's like you're really concerned, you know, because. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. But yeah, that's the thing that I love learning about different cultures and the dialects that they do use or the tones. And yeah, it's, it's fun. 